climate is both the same and different than traditional tech. I mean, in some cases, no different whatsoever. You know, it's a SaaS company that's doing something around uh, corporate efficiency in, in some way, shape, or form. I mean, some of our companies in that space are literally selling on AdWords. And then on the on the far side of things, we have companies that have multi-year procurement processes. They sign, you know, power purchase agreements with big, giant utilities. And, you know, some of these probably took a year two years to sign. It's an incredible long sales cycle. And then the delivery cycle, you know, could be five or more years. I mean, the thing about Rolodexes is they rotate and they come and go. Being able to learn fast and listen, that's a really hard skill set to learn. They might have a great Rolodex. They might know everybody, but can they tell them why the electric rail car is an improvement? Yep. And are they going to learn what they need to learn about the inner workings of a rail car? Are they just going to sit back and collect their commissions? from their golf buddies. In most cases, I would take high-performing, fast-iterating, listening sales capacity and, and apply it to that early stage. Do not hide bad news. Front-run bad news every single time. The good partners are the ones that are like, well, that sucks. How are we going to fix that? Let me, let me bring these resources in. All right, uh, welcome. Uh, I'm excited to have Josh Passement here, here um, who is a couple hundred yards away from where, where I'm recording, but the internet being what it is, it's easier to do these things not in person. Uh, so Josh is a, a GP at Congruent Ventures. Congruent, uh, yeah. And, uh, and he started the firm uh, 10 years ago, 11 years ago now? Um, six or seven. With or six or seven. All right, I'm making Josh seem older than he is. So I'll let him do his own introduction here. Um, so, uh, welcome, Josh. Thanks a bunch, Alex. Um, so, yeah, Josh Bosman's here, uh, yeah, one of the co-founders and managing partners at uh, Congruent Ventures. We're early-stage venture firm focused on everything climate, early-stage, based in North America. Um, I'm based in uh, San Francisco, generally, and uh, yeah. we invest in everything hardware, software, fintech, deep tech, anything that has a uh, potential effect climate. Awesome. Um, well, yeah, climate is climate is uh, the rage these days, um, for for better or for worse. One could argue for worse, or maybe it's better that we're focused on it. Um, I think just to start off, can you give uh, everybody a, a sense for your journey, like how you, what led you to start the firm? And I know you just raised a fund, so congrats on on raising the latest fund. I'm curious how that went versus when you started the fund uh, six or seven years ago. Yeah. So everyone comes to venture from a different path. Um, my path is, uh, is definitely more on the random walk side of things. So like a lot of, uh, like a lot of tech founders, I come from a tech background, um, studied physics at UC Berkeley, did some research, ended up in semiconductor world for, uh, for quite a while. Um, eventually spent almost 10 years at Intel working on Intel's first wireless chips. Um, then it's first optical telecom products and then, uh, incubation and, and investing in, uh, Intel capital. And, um, after that jumped into business school thinking, uh, you know, maybe I should, uh, maybe I should switch to the business side of things and ended up co-founding a company there to focus on, uh, you know, the grass greener side and, you know, mobile location services and, and all that sort of fun stuff before, uh, before the iPhone iPhone came out, that was a good time to exit that business. And I jumped back into semiconductors to focus on energy, which is sort of, you know, long roundabout way about how I got into energy and climate. So I built a business focused on electric vehicles, smart grid storage, all that, all that fun stuff. Um, chances are pretty good if you are driving an electric vehicle these days, you're using chips from one of my old groups, and uh, it's kind of fun. Um, so after, you know, once again after that acquisition, that company was acquired. I jumped into um, 
into venture with a friend of mine from business school, a company firm that's now called Prelude Ventures. Spent uh, five, almost six years there um, before co-founding Congruent to really focus on the earlier side of things. So Prelude is multi-stage seed to growth, and um, Congruent is really laser-focused on that earliest uh, that earliest stage. So right now, about four out of our five investments, uh, in four out of our five investments, we're the first uh, invested institutional investors in those rounds, and we leave about two-thirds of the deals we do. Again, like I mentioned earlier, everything we do is in uh, based in North America. We tend to be pretty hands-on and pretty involved in our companies at the earliest stages because, you know, very often, um, very often it's a very small founding team, and and you know they've seldom got a product to market. In many cases, haven't even started developing the product. So it's really a, an incredibly early stage set of bets, and you know all the fun that goes with that. Yeah, no, it's uh, and it is lots of fun. Um, we'll get to the go to market for founders and and the actual portfolio companies in a second. But I noticed a post that your partner Abe made uh, on LinkedIn about how hard it was to raise your first fund versus how much, how oversubscribed raising your most recent fund was. So can you talk about that? Like what was the sort of go-to-market for you as a raising a venture fund when you started versus how has that changed over time? So I will say that there's a lot of parallels and much as, you know, I'm not going to get any sympathy for this. There's a lot of parallels between raising a venture fund and raising a round of capital for a, for company having you know having been on both sides of the table in, in that respect, um, the good and the bad. The bad is when you're raising a venture fund. The only thing that goes by with time is time. When you're uh, raising capital in a startup, you can make progress on product development, go to market, and everything else. And so you know on on the plus side, you know we don't actually have to deliver you know anything when we're asking for money upfront as we're raising a first fund. Um, on the downside. It's really hard to make progress and just say you're going to do X, Y, and Z, and uh, please give us money. And so our <laughs> first fund, our first fund, you know, we we come, you know, there's a lot of nuance to, to venture. When you're starting a firm with a new partner that you haven't actually partnered with before, you're, you know, you have so many strikes against you. So we had the, you know, we're new managers, you know, first time raising raising a fund on our own, first time working together. Early stage is also another strike. The, the perception is that's even riskier, and we're in climate which is yet riskier. So we had like four strikes raising our first fund. Um, we managed to do that just based on essentially a lot of earlier relationships and trust we'd, uh, we'd built elsewhere. Um, so again, you know, it would have been, would have been very difficult if we hadn't already sort of been around the space. You have a, you have an element to go to market with that as well. You have to really explain what you're doing. That's different. Why your backgrounds are relevant to what you're doing and give people confidence that you know a lot more about the sector than most. So you want that asymmetry if, if you can possibly get it. So that was, so fun one was, you know, 19, yeah, you know, what is it, that 2016, 2017. Um, you know, we subsequently raised, you know, three, three other funds, uh, three flagship funds in a, in a, a growth fund. And um, mostly it's because we've done, I think, what the, uh, what we said we were going to do. We're still investing in the same kind of companies we originally set out to invest in. Same stage, same sectors. Uh, yeah, slightly bigger checks because bigger fun. But literally, you know, we haven't changed what we're doing, and I think we, we've uh, earned a lot of trust without, you know, because we haven't uh, crept too far away from our original goal. And uh, and it seems to be working as well. So you know that uh, that path to market, the uh, you know you, you'd look at from a from a startup perspective, is uh, you know we have elements of that too. You know, we have to source deals. We have to execute them. We have to, we have to help companies. Uh, you know, when they're in trouble, and um, 
you know, that virtuous cycle if you actually do it well. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, so I think highlighting a couple of things you said there, I mean, first, I think a lot of people don't realize that VCs have a go-to-market problem of their own. And um, especially if you're at the seed stage, I think if you're really early, you're not getting anything done when you're raising money, like you're, you know, as a, as a founder. And it probably feels like that. You're two guys walking up and down, maybe not Sandhill, but somewhere like Sandhill, trying to get people to write you a check um, based on a vision. And so it's, there, there are a lot of parallels. And I think there's more empathy than, uh, at least for, from a general partner, maybe not an associate, but definitely from a general partner than, um, than founders realize. Um, and the, so the other thing that I thought was really interesting was that you said that you've basically just done what you said you would do. And a lot of people underestimate the importance of just doing what you said you were going to do uh, when it comes to raising money. Because I think, I mean, my, my favorite example here is a counterexample. One of the companies um, I worked with, you know, the founder uh, gets this, forwards me this email, like, hey, what do I respond to this? And it was from a, uh, an, an investor who remained nameless. He says, hey, so-and-so, um, appreciate your new deck. I like the pitch. I was wondering, like, we pulled up the deck that you sent us nine months ago that said it had you would have four million ARR by now, um, but you where is it? You you don't have it, <laughs> and and uh, and you know it was one of those like do you think there's an answer that gets them to invest here because that's a no <laughs> like that's there's no answer you could possibly provide for not delivering on your plan, um, and so I think people you know underestimate the value of saying you're going to do something going out and doing it. Right. Maybe it goes slightly better than you thought it would. Maybe it goes slightly worse, but like you did your part and, you know, it went roughly as you predicted. Um, that creates trust and makes the next time you ask them for money in this case a lot easier. Whereas if you fail to do that, you're never, you've, you've blown trust and you're never going to get it back. Definitely a lot of that. Companies, they're forever putting up plans. Yeah. And I would say, um, with few exceptions, we never really believe anything people tell us in terms of their actual plan. And so, you know, we're mentally haircutting everything. Um, and sometimes it's it's really frustrating to deeply technical founders because they're like, no, no, this is a well-thought-out plan. But, you know, the, the reality is, you know, we, as much as we would love to see people execute, we underwrite to, you know, a different you know, different level. Just probably like, you know, we're telling our, our limited partners, our investors, that we're going to deliver, you know, X, Y, and Z multiple on the fund. And they're probably thinking to themselves, if they do half of that, they'll be real, be really happy. Right. Um, and so, so I have no idea what they actually, actually, you know, underwrite on their side. But it's the same thing. So, I mean, what we want to see, obviously, with any startup is if you do blow the plan. And yes, we do have a ridiculous longitudinal view because we see companies, you know, pre pre seed, pre seed, seed, Series A, and we'll look at them, you know, at a bunch of different stages. And we, get, of course, you know, I save the old decks, and I'm kind of look, doing look backs and want to really understand if people blew their numbers, but often there's really good reasons for blowing their numbers. Oh, it's like, you know, you discovered that your, your path to market didn't work or your channel was wrong or, or, uh, your tech, uh, tech stack was, was wrong. You had to refactor the whole thing. And you know, that's, that's life. And if you did that in a coherent, thoughtful way, um, that's not a showstopper, uh, but you do have to explain it. You can't just be like, ah, it's six months. Out. You know, we pushed our forecast six months out. I mean, I have a company that chose recently to switch up basically its technical approach to something, and it had two years of cash in the bank because it had just gotten funded. And they said, "Look, you know, we're we, we're making this sort of fundamental product call, and it's going to delay our path to market." But tell you what, like it delays our ramp, it delays our spend. We're going to slow hiring, and we're going to get you know two and a half years. And so 
you know, we're still going to hit the market and have the same time in market, but a little bit later in time, which, you know, it's not great, you know, time, value, money and all, but um, it's a very thoughtful view. It's probably the right call. Like, you know, Dan, the torpedoes full speed ahead. Let's make the numbers at the expense of like everything in the future. Like no one wants to see that. Right. Well, yeah, I think, I mean, some of the worst advice I ever got as a founder was uh, another successful founder seeing us have signs of product market fit, saying, oh, you got it. You got to go sell more, right? Like it's working. You got to go sell more. And I was like, I, I mean, it's kind of working. I'm not sure if it's totally working. We hired a salesperson. We went and sold more and that like took our eyes off of the product ball. And like we ended up having a lot of churn and realizing six months later and, you know, half a million or a million dollars later, like we need to go back and fix the core problems. We shouldn't have hired those salespeople at first. And so I think, yeah, you can't, you want to be thoughtful about it. And a lot of founders, myself included, the first time don't realize the ramifications of trying to jump in to go to market before you're ready. Um, just to hit, just to hit the numbers, just because I said I would do a thing. Something else, just the way you approach it is very different than a lot of investors, especially ones you know, not to, not to knock particular backgrounds, but with a pure financial background, like they're used to, you know, if you worked at Morgan Stanley, somebody sends you a model, right? And then they, you know, in diligence don't exactly hit the model or over the course of, you know, the diligence process, miss a number, right? That's remarkable. That's unusual. That's remarkable. Whereas at the early stage, especially the pre-seed and seed stage, it's kind of normal. Yeah, I think I think the normal is 100% slipping everything. That's not to say that's okay, and no one should slip anything. But you know, the reality is, you know, product development is is not a uh, unfortunately not a deterministic. You know, does not have deterministic timelines. It's uh, it is definitely worth that. And you know, honestly, people get the go to market motion and the channel management motion completely wrong half the time. I mean, I, if I look back at you know some of the companies in in my prior portfolios that didn't survive or didn't thrive. It's almost always something related to lack of understanding of the market and the go-to-market and you know how to get it to market, how to sell it. I do think you're navigating a very fine line with the uh, you know with regard to building you know sales in general. You know, often as often as not, you know, a CEO or a founder, if not the CEO, is usually the first best you know salesperson. And honestly, you really want to show. In most cases, a replicable sales motion in some fit, in some way, shape, or form before you go build out a team. Because the worst thing you can have is like a, a really high-performing sales team that's got nothing to sell, or a sales team that's trying to sell something the market doesn't want, or in a way that the market can't absorb it. And then you just burn money and you piss off the market all at the same time. So that's not winning. Yeah, I think that's that's a good. Uh, you've hit on a bunch of this, but if, if you were to sort of encapsulate, what are you looking for? at the different stages from a go-to-market perspective? You go from pre-seed through Series A. Like, what what are you looking for at each stage and what changes? And how much of it is, I know it when I see it, and how much of it is, if I go to my partners with this, they're going to laugh at me, I'm, so I'm not going to go to my partners with this. So I think I think the numbers you know, vary tremendously. I think what you really want to see. So the, these, these, this nomenclature keeps changing, right? Everything kind of sh- keeps shifting to the left. But you know, I'd say these days... What a seed, you know, what success coming out of a seed uh, round means, and a seed round is usually I got an idea, maybe I've got some kind of like sketchy MVP, but I'm actually going to build an actual product and get it to the point where I can launch it. Um, and then the A is to launch with more scale. And so usually, what I want to see, you know, coming out of a seed round is a company that is that has shipped some kind of product to some kind of market and had some kind of proven efficacy and adoption. And that is 
hopefully something more than just straight pilots, something where there's actually intent to buy. And that's the part where it's obviously a little little subjective. You are, you really want to look through the, you know, a lot of people are trying to, you know, what what's the repeat buys? You know, in a CPG food company, you want to see, you know, how many people are doing repeat buys on it. In a in an ARR, you know, in an, at a SaaS company, you want to see people switching up from like a month to month to you know an annual contractor saying, oh, this is really compelling. I want to I want to prepay for three years and, uh, and and capitalize the expense because it's so compelling, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to do this for the next few years. Those motions are great. So I'd say, in general, I, I tend to prioritize fewer, deeper, really convincing adoption proof points rather than a whole bunch of shallow shallow ones. So it's, I think it's quality over quantity at that earliest stage. And then you got to figure out how to scale it. And that's, that's usually that next round of capitals when you say, look, I, you know, my, my, you know, founders, you know, product led, you know, founder led sales kind of company can no longer, you know, oftentimes founders, both product and sales, that's not scalable. So then you need to start, you know, augmenting that and how, you know, understanding and building a replicable, uh, you know, sales motion is just, that's really tough, but that's really classic Series A. Right, and that's that's before you get to the Series A. That's what you do with your Series. That's A. usually what you're funding. That's usually what you're right. funding into the Series A. So, I mean, at that point, is your founder able to articulate? Oh, these are the steps that I that people go through, or like I have an ideal customer, or do you look at it and you think there's probably an ideal customer here? Once they're funded and bring in experts, they can figure out who exactly that is. I would say. Coming out of the C, going into the A, usually founders uh, and the company would have a fairly clearly enunciated pro, uh, customer set and go-to-market, you know, process and sales process. Like that would be clearly enunciated. It may not be right, right, but they at least have a working hypothesis they're going <laughs> to they're going to invest against. So that's that's the that's the you know that's the challenge is. You know, you, you don't know these things work until you actually try them, and then you actually try to repeat them. And the the worst thing you can do is you know keep throwing good money after bad. Also, you got to really, really be attuned to whether these this process is working. And if it's not, change it up and don't be shy. How how can you tell if it's working? Are there things you look for at the board level or when you talk to founders? Yeah, I mean, at the board level, it's really you know it's really tops down observation. It's do you have a pipeline? Is that pipeline growing? And is that pipeline converting? And very, very importantly, what's the timing between this side of the funnel and that side of the funnel? You really want that to be deterministic because that's going to define how big your sales team needs to be in order to you know hit whatever milestones you're trying to hit. If this is if there's if your sales funnel is a year long and has an incredible loss ratio, that's that's really a tough one. Depending on uh, depending on you know ACV. Does that kill the business, or does it depend on ACV? It, it might kill the business. It might not. I mean, if your ACVs are multi-million dollars, um, you could probably live with something like that. If your ACVs are, you know, 50K, eh, that's, that's not great. Unless you have a very, again, there's a full spectrum, right? There's a high-touch, you know, very sales-oriented process, and there's a very low-touch, very marketing-oriented process. Um, you certainly can. There's, there's plenty of SaaS companies loving life in the... Uh, you know, sub hundred dollar, you know, not even ACV, right. just ongoing, you know, ongoing pricing. That's you can't support that with a human, but it's perfectly fine if that's your appropriate sales motion. Yeah, if you're in the product led growth world. Well, it might be helpful to kind of get a sense for how that applies in climate, because climate, you know, 
there's a there's a lot of really long sales cycles in climate. So um, I'm curious, like, is that are there patterns that you've seen specific to climate that that you're excited about or not ex- or the opposite of excited about? <laughs> yeah, there's there's a lot of really cool stuff. I mean, climate is both the same and different than traditional tech. I mean, in some cases, in some in some places, it's like no difference, no different whatsoever. You know, it's a SaaS company that's doing something around uh, corporate efficiency in, in some way, shape, or form, and sells the same, you know, similar pricing to you know other kinds of SaaS packages enterprises buy, and you know, then it's just you know, know your customer, figure out what the what the sales motion is, and and repeat. I mean, some of our companies in that space are literally selling on AdWords um, and making you know double digit growth, you know, growth month on month, just because they've really cracked the nut on that process. Others are entirely sales focused, you know, selling organizations where it's like, you know, a one-to-one big, big ACVs. And, um, you know, and then on the, on the far side of things, we have companies that are, that have multi-year procurement processes. You know, one of, one of our, you know, at, at one end of the extreme, we have a company called Fervo Energy, which has been in the press recently for some of their work. They sign, you know, power purchase agreements with big, giant utilities. And, you know, some of these probably took a year, two years to, uh, to sign. It's an incredible long sales cycle. And then the delivery cycle, you know, could be five or more years. So it's, it's crazy. But, those, but the value of those contracts is so high that it totally justifies that sort of timeline. And it's also deterministic. They're locked in. They're contracted. So that's, that path to market, that sales motion is really entirely you know BD and upstream um, really understanding you know how to go through that motion and um, and locking it in and make sure making sure those those contracts are structured that's a lot different than you know selling selling an enterprise yeah software package to even a utility that those are ter- you know those are in general pretty bad customers just because they are slow but you know, you really wouldn't want your power company to be a, uh, a super fast mover, adopt every new startup package that comes out of there. Like, you know, we like to keep the lights on. We like to, you know, make sure that the power doesn't go out. So there are there are sub segments within climate that are really conservative, and you really have to understand that. I mean, we from the, there was a clean tech bubble in sort of the two thousand seven, eight, nine era, and a lot of companies were doing things in that era. That were that had amazingly fast paybacks. Like they saved people money, they were more efficient, saved energy, all of which is great. But they didn't really understand. In so many cases, they didn't really understand their customers. And to say, you know, to say to a building owner, I can, if you let me control your air conditioner or whatever, I can do it. I can do it better. You'll pay me a fee, a monthly fee, whatever, and uh, and you'll recoup whatever fee you know I'm charging you like no time flat. So this will save you money. But then you have to realize that, you know. That landlord is spending like you know a dollar per square foot on their air conditioning bill. They they charge a hundred bucks a square foot um, for triple net or whatever, and and then you're like, well, what 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 is the actual what's the customer care about? The customers, you know, the the office owner, do they actually really care about saving ten or twenty percent on their electric bill, or do they care about not pissing off their tenants by making them too hot or too cold? Right, right. pretty easy. It's a pretty easy thing to see through, and it's like, well, uh, turns out. It's not very compelling. You're trying to solve a problem they don't have. And the there are ways to get around that, and there are ways that people have discovered to sell. But the over the top of the head, there's going to save you money on a monthly basis. Like, yeah, but no one cares. So you have to find find that path to market, which in this case has been, you know, these days, you sell it through the chief sustainability officer at CBRE who's saying, look, I want all my buildings to be lead platinum. 
because I have a lead platinum stamp and it attracts a better tenant. Right. All of a sudden, it's a very different sales motion. Right. Yeah, I think I think that there is this fallacy of especially very technically focused founders that if I save somebody money, they're obviously a rational actor and they're therefore going <laughs> to pick up the free money, right? And and then you you get into it. I mean, EV charging is one of the big ones where people are like, oh, if you install these, your building will be worth more. People st- spend more money at your hotel, whatever. Some of that might be true, but you know, on the flip side, you, so you're running a hotel that does ten million in revenue and you put in eight EV chargers that maybe throw off a couple hundred bucks in a good week. Like you're not, you know, nobody cares, right? Like that isn't relevant to your hotel business, what the EV chargers are doing in the, in the parking lot. And if anything, it's just a headache because now you have to worry about them and they break. And, you know, it, I, I think that there's a lot of other trendy things that get brought up by startups because it makes rational sense, but they're, they're selling on this sort of bigger societal kind of, story that the actual customer doesn't give anything that they don't care about. Nope. Um, nope. Uh, you know, I, I, we, we back a lot of technical founders. Um, probably, I don't know, a quarter or a third of our companies are founded by you know, fresh PhDs or postdocs. There may or may not have actually ever worked at a company before. And it's a, it, we get a wide range of, of how they run their companies and how they think about selling. But I think in general, one of the, one of the biggest traps for like a hardcore tech founder is the whole, you know, if we build it, they will come philosophy of sales. I, I'm not sure that ever works anywhere anywhere in the uh, entire startup universe, with one exception. Um, you, and this is not one we tend to invest in. If you're making a commodity product that's uh, drop-in compatible with a commodity you know, sector at cheaper price, great. Lab, lab, but then again, lab-grown diamonds have not lived up to the hype, but... Uh, but maybe turns out they're not the same. Well, I mean, they are. They're yeah, identical Chemically in, in a same. lot of ways. Chemically the same, but do they have the feeling? And it turns out that right. actually counts. Do for they have all the like suffering and, and complexity <laughs> blood, of a real life? Yeah, yeah, not so much. Uh, so I no, I, I think. But I think that's a great. That's a great observation. That the um, a lot of technical. I mean, I've my whole career has been well about half working with technical founders, and obviously now consulting exclusively with technical founders, but also you know working with with people who went to Stanford Business School, you know, other sort of very successful repeat entrepreneurs. Um, and that is the, the biggest difference is the, those, the people that are experienced respect the go-to-market side of things a lot more than your freshly minted technical founder does because they know how hard the technical stuff is and they think, well, this is obviously the hard part. And they <laughs> underestimate that like getting humans to do what you want them to do is also extremely hard. And that's the go-to-market piece. And less predictable, right? You can, there's some technical problems you can't predict, but if you have the medical, mathematical proof that you can do the thing, chances are eventually you will figure out how to do the thing. Um, whereas you may not be able to convince that human ever. Um, it's very, very true. I mean, if you look at the, uh, the amount of time I spend on different aspects of you know, underwriting, underwriting new companies, there's a, there's, a, there's a chunk of it that's on the technical side. It's really just like, does this pass a sniff test? Because in most cases, people haven't done the thing yet. There's a, they're saying they can do the thing. And then you're like, okay, let me look at your background. Oh, yeah, you could probably get the thing done. Um, you know, pretty good chance. Like, for example, one of our companies, a company called Parallel Systems, makes, you know, electric, autonomous, uh, individual rail cars. They're, you know, it's a big train with batteries and motors, you know, big train car with batteries and motors you drop a car container on. You know, when I invested, this was literally, you know, a, a few guys in, in someone's garage, you know, farting around with motors and batteries. But they, you know, some got it off of eBay from Tesla or something. And um, you're like, well, 
will they be able to build this like whole, you know, what's something just about as sophisticated as a car? Oh, turns out, you know, these are some of the senior guys at SpaceX that have been there for 14 years. Yeah, they could probably make a train. They made <laughs> rockets, they made train. So like that was that was done. But almost all the underwriting effort around that was like really understanding, you know, the market, market size, and how the heck they're gonna sell and who where are the barriers gonna be and you know what that process is looking like. Who are the customers? And that's almost every one of our companies. And we have a lot of technical companies in the portfolio. But well, yeah, yeah, I mean that's a yeah. That's one where you need to know the market, right? Like that as I recall, that's more of a drayage play. Like it's not you're not sending trains across the country necessarily. It's more getting they will. They will. Well, but, well, yeah. maybe, maybe. I mean, but but I think early on, right? You know, I mean Elon really figured this out with the high-end performance roadster to begin with, right? Because that was, you know, that, those are the people with the disposable income to blow on a complete unproven toy. And mm -hmm. it seems obvious in hindsight, but I think in, in some of these more B2B markets where you have the technical knowledge to build the thing, you know, finding that the answers to the go-to-market questions are, are hard, right? You need to really know the industry. And ironically, if you really did know the industry, you might not want to do the thing because you might realize it's really hard. Uh, I would say there, there are definitely a handful of founders, you know, that may not have started what companies they did if they realized just how hard they were. I'm, I mean, I, I ended up, my last company ended up in travel. I was, I spent five years not doing travel because I'd been in travel before and I knew how hard it was. And I really <laughs> didn't want to build another travel company. And then you know, we got, we got pulled into it. Like that was the best use case for what we had built. And that's where we found product market fit. But, um, I knew all of the problems with that industry and it made it hard to be excited about spending more time there. Although it's I will say enough. travel, the travel industry has the best conferences. Uh, <laughs> I bet it does. I bet it does. <laughs> they're selling travel. Um, yeah. well, so you mentioned this before and I'm, I'm curious how this evolves over time, but you know, founder led sales being really important at the beginning of a company. And, you know, then series A, maybe there's that transition. How does that, how does that transition happen? And like, what are the good ways to do it? Are there things to avoid? Yeah. So the part of the reason we like, you know, founder led sales doesn't have to be CEO, but, but founding teams, founding teams leading those sales processes is because sales and product development is always just almost integrated at that earliest stage. Like you're, you're hopefully closing the loop with feedback from, from customers and, and market interactions. The transition from that is almost always bumpy. Um, there's few founders that are good at hiring sales teams. And oftentimes, you know, your first hires are, are almost less sales, more BD. And mm -hmm. there's, there's definitely more experimentation that has to go on. You hire a salesperson, they're usually really good at selling. That means you have a product that's sellable and ready to go. And probably a uh, you know a, a process that's sort of documented and even you know, virtually or otherwise. So it is that's usually too big a leap, and so you end up with sort sort of intermediate stages along the way. And then if you hire you know IC salespeople versus a you know sales manager, then you've got to manage those. And then it's a bandwidth issue once again. You hire a sales manager; they may not may not want to be a player coach, and that's its own challenge. Um, so it's it's definitely tough to find you know, the right skill set. So I think it's more of a people problem than so much a, uh, you know, a transitioning problem. There are definitely some companies that are forever founder sales led, especially the ones where, you know, your, your, whatever it is, is a, a big ticket. And then it's just something that's pretty natural. 
Yeah, I think, I mean, it's, it's interesting to hear that it's a people problem and not a process problem because also a lot of technical founders like to write down the process and feel like uh, yeah. that's <laughs> the issue and not the, and not the people. Is there, I mean, when you, if, if I were a founder and said, Hey, Josh, I'm, I need, I need my first sales hire. What would you, what profile just in general, like what profile do you typically suggest or look for? Well, in an ideal world, you'll find someone that sold something similar. Um, and been around at the beginning of that product's you know, sales life. That being said, there's definitely counterexamples. I mean, if you're a CPG food company, you're probably going to want to find someone that's been in CPG sales, and that that skill set's pretty fungible between startups and you know big companies and stuff like that. Um, if it's an earlier stage company with a new kind of product, mm-hmm. you know, take the parallel example. I'm not sure what the right salesperson for that organization is. I mean, you know. Railroads buy rail cars that have been, you know, pretty much identical for the last hundred years. There's not a lot of innovation there. It's like who's got the cheapest one, who's got the right color. I guess I don't know, but that's not that's not something where there's a whole cadre of people. So maybe it's someone who sold, you know, Caterpillar heavy equipment or deer tractors or something like that. Maybe it's someone who sold uh, software to the rail industry in the past. Like it could go a lot of different ways. What you really have to do is just really, really in those cases not just understand what you're selling, but really, really understand the customer and where their pain points are. So at the end of the day, understanding and really listening is, is the thing you know, I look for when I'm interviewing. You know, I'm usually the last step in the interview process, but that's what I'm listening for, is people's ability to listen to customers and enunciate what the problems this product is going to solve for them is. So, Yeah, the, the real one's an interesting example too, because are you hiring for that Rolodex, are you hiring for the skill set and the listening? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. I mean, the thing about Rolodexes is they rotate and they come and go. The thing about being able to learn fast and listen, that's a really hard skill set to learn. And I think a high quality, I mean, this this is where, you know, opinions differ dramatically. But in, in most cases, I would take high-performing, fast-iterating, listening sales capacity and, and apply it to that early stage. Later stage, totally different story. You're scaling into the tens of millions of dollars or whatever. You have you know a sales team. You will need it. Yeah, I think at that point, having a professor, professional manager for a sales team is actually pretty important. I'm, I, I personally know I'm not good at managing individual salespeople. Um, being an engineer at heart, um, <laughs> it's very yeah. definitely a oil and water kind of thing going on there. <laughs> So I love having a you know a sales manager that can sort of bridge that gap and and make the sales team efficient, but that's a different story. That's once you've established the process and you're you're it's something replicable. Um, in that early day, in those early days, it's it's just not. You need to be able to be agile and adapt. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there are kind of two things to press on here. One is the the Rolodex thing. If you're whether it's a Rolodex or just you've been in the industry for a long time, you think about that guy selling rail cars, right? He's been selling the same thing for a hundred years. They might have a great Rolodex. They might know everybody, but can they tell them why the electric rail car is an improvement? Yep. Mm-hmm. You know, are, and are they going to learn what they need to learn about the inner workings of a rail car? Or are they just going to sit back and collect their commissions from their golf buddies? Um, I, I think I, the other tough choice I see founders make is whether you hire that ind- hungry individual contributor who might be a manager versus as your first hire versus hiring somebody with manager that might have been an individual contributor a year or two ago, but has a little bit of management experience or a very senior manager. I, I'm curious, maybe they're the perfect one. Oh, this guy was 
he wants to be VP of sales because he was the first sales guy at our, you know, five-year-ago competitor. And he built that one up and now we, he wants to be VP of sales here. Any, anything to look for or be careful of in those decisions? So one of the places I've seen companies fall down when they're hiring, you know, call it experienced salespeople, is really understanding like who cracked the door open in their last role for like a, if they were you know the first sales guy your woman or whatever at a new new product company who who actually cracked that door open and who is basically an order taker you you know it, it's really hard to suss that out sometimes but when you discover that someone was in fact an order taker or was too senior and not actually a player coach those people are typically not not the first I mean you know I skew early right so mm-hmm. those are typically not the best first hires to do that role. You you want to find the person that figured out how to sell the thing. And I am actually a huge fan of of uh, of hiring you know smart high output individuals especially for companies that are building something kind of new that the market hasn't really seen before. You kind of want the uh, you know the market understanding. I'm you know I'm selling to utilities, I'm selling to you know rail and transportation, I'm selling to you know what pick pick your Pick your market. We've got all sorts of stuff. You know, I'm selling to you know building owners. You want someone that knows something about the universe they're selling into. But you know, if you're to use your example, if, if I'm selling EV chargers to hotels, maybe I want to know more about. You know, I want someone who's like sold stuff to hotels in the past, or never mind that, sold stuff to REITs in the past. Like it, it could go a bunch of different ways. But you kind of want that context because the context you got to learn it one way or another. And if you can jump in with it, great. But you also you know, I strongly advocate for uh, for people in the sales and GTM side, people have, that have gone through that motion in some way, shape, or form, form before. Those can be individual contributors. They can be early managers. I don't see a huge spread on those skill sets between early and late stage careers. People with late, early and late stage careers, you can do that early, you can do that late. It's just a different kind of DNA. In terms of professional sales team management, Definitely skews later stage career, right? Right. It just mechanically has to. Right. Yeah. You can't if you go in managing a Series C sized team and you only have yourself. It's not. It's you're kind of set up for for disaster. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, that was was super interesting. So, uh, shifting gears to kind of more general questions, I'm curious. You talked about some of the mistakes specific to go to go to market and hiring, but are there other mistakes that founders make that you which they wouldn't, or uh, or best practices that you wish everybody would do to avoid those mistakes? Oh, of course. Scaling a sales team before you have something that's super sellable and scalable usually just means you're burning excess cash, you get a frustrated sales team, you have attrition. That's not winning. Um, it's almost better. I mean, you really have to be agile about building that team in lockstep with with custom, with with sales and with, uh, with market traction. So that's one. And the flip side of that is, you you start this and you stall because you know you find a uh, you know early market segment and you really you know go deep but that's not big enough to support what you're trying to do and not being agile about making sure to feed that that feedback back into the product teams um, to address a bigger market that you know when when sales is essentially siloed that's another you know disaster I've seen it's be- because you siloed sales so they're not getting exactly feedback. I mean the best situations are when sales is constantly talking to product, is constantly talking to marketing. And it's just this constant loop. And you don't want it to iterate to the point where you're not actually stabilizing a product. But 
in in almost all cases, you know, marketing and, and product management gets it wrong in you know small or large part, and sales should be the feedback loop. And sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. Best organizations, it's tightly integrated. Yeah, one of the things that's always surprised me. I mean, you do have the stories of the sales leadership dragging the product roadmap around because they keep, especially in enterprise that's not, context. Yeah, that's not great either. But yeah, <laughs> you know, but but I think one of the things that's always surprising to me is, especially in technical-led companies, they have a much higher standard for their product than their customers do sometimes. Mm-hmm. And if you're solving a real pain well enough, the, the sales team knows that and they can keep selling it, even if the product team or the engineering team feels like, oh, there's these 18 improvements that we need to do before it's up to our standards. It may, in fact, that may be completely unnecessary from the customer standpoint, and only your sales team is really hearing that. Um, yeah, they, but they need to. I mean, that's that's their job to communicate that. So there, you there, depending on the nature of the product, the difference between a minimum viable product and like a fully complete product, you know, could be could be massive. And the, and some some markets respond well to scaling with a minimum viable product. For some, it's just really like, this is a proof point that something's here. There's not going to be broad adoption even within, you, you may get small sales, but you won't get broad adoption until you actually have a full a full enough product. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm a huge advocate of don't let perfect be the enemy of the good uh, with regard to product and let sales be a feedback loop on that. Yeah, I think that's a great, that's a great point. Um, well, so... From a founder standpoint, because you're on a bunch of boards, you've been investing early, you've seen those boards be high functioning and maybe one or two didn't, you know, didn't lead to results that you wanted to see or the, you know, the <laughs> best possible. <laughs> yeah, that would never happen because, uh, no. you know, we're all VCs, we know what we're doing here. But I'm curious what, uh, like, what, what should a founder look for? Uh, in a, in a board member. And, and I mean that both in terms of like, as you, if you have a competitive round and you have a choice and also, um, and also once somebody's on your board, like what, what do you wish they asked you for? There's a bunch of different things you can, you can get out of a board member on the necessary evil side of things. You know, you're, you're going to inevitably have some, some VCs on the board unless you're, you know, open AI and you're, you're very unusual. <laughs> right. um, Who are these people? <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. Uh, the, you know, you may or may not have a choice on that, but the best, in my opinion, and I, I kind of look around at our, our uh, you know, some of my fellow uh, VC board members, the ones that are the best are the ones that actually like take the time, roll up their sleeves and pay attention to the company. There's definitely a ton, and this is definitely more common than otherwise. Maybe they'll read the, the board deck five minutes before the uh, board meeting and show up to the board meeting and really not not have value and then not do any follow-up and follow through. So those are those are tough. I highly recommend every you know everyone raising money and actually having if you have a choice, run references on your on your investors. I mean, I you know we tell we tell potential companies that are you know considering a term sheet from us. You know maybe it's not as high priced as others, but we're like go call our go call our portfolio company CEOs. You can call anyone in the portfolio. Like I don't care any any of them fair game. And um, I, I know that's not the case for everybody. Um, so I, I'd encourage people on that one. So that's those are the necessary evil, right? You're going to have an investor on the board. You may as well understand what their emotions are and how they've worked with others. Then you've got, you know, on the simple side of things, you've got the high profile, um, you know, starry name. You want you want someone who's like a, you know, got some bling to them. You know, that, that the industry recognizes. They may or may or may not actually do anything um, truly for you, but it, it is a it is helpful. It's star power. It's it's uh, it's it's you know. Hopefully, going to add some kind of value beyond that, but that's that's certainly an understandable move if you're doing it consciously. Then you've got the ones that claim 
and and this is where I'm a lot a lot more skeptical, and I haven't seen it work at all personally. Is you've got the board members that you ostensibly bring in because they're supposed to be industry experts and roll in with a ton of customers and credibility. I just haven't. I have not seen that happen. I have not seen that work, and I've seen a lot of companies try, and people come in with fantastic resumes, and you're like, why? Like, why is this person not working? And they're they're just this like industry superstar. They've got an immense network. Everyone knows who they are, and it's just it's just not bringing anything. The last ones are the ones that either plug a board specific gap, be it you know high quality board governance or a ton of operating experience, but you know sort of that really hands on piece. So like mm-hmm. you know one of one of my companies is looking for a you know a board member right now, an independent board member right now, because no one at the company's really got depth in negotiating huge JVs for these huge you know collaborative efforts with other you know with multinationals, you know the company's you know being run by, you know, competent people, you know, fresh PhD founder, you know, very experienced, um, you know, head of sales. Those are great. Um, You know, companies doing great on execution, but that next step, you know, it could be one of the investors, but like, this is a place where we would love to see that, that heavy, the heavy hitting um, experience on the board and functional, but do you need to negotiate that up front as well? If all you're doing is being a board member, that's like, you know, four to six meetings a year, you know, maybe the ad hoc call, you know, at other times to set up for success with an, you know, with a board member you're choosing, you almost want to set up, you know, um, essentially a statement of work almost informal in many cases, but something more than that. So it's like an out of band resource. So you're going to spend, you know, let's, let's assume, you know, if you sign on as an independent board member here, you're going to do. 16 hours, a couple of days of work a month or, or, or something with the company. You're going to mentor people. You're going to help negotiate JVs. You're going to be, you know, consultative on an actual, you know, functional basis. So you, you kind of think of those people as a little bit of, a little bit of a consultant plus their functional board role. And that's when you do that, right. And you set that up, right. It's awesome. Um, Something you can find immensely competent people that actually like. Perhaps they're in the latter stages of their, their career. They, they're semi-retired, and they're kind of doing this because they're they still love the work and they still love this stuff. They just don't want to do it full time anymore. And then it's a huge win-win. Um, also, you know, entrepreneurs that are you know kicking ass and taking names in other sectors. Great. They they may be be able to bring a lot of you know strategic thinking around fundraising processes or M and A processes. So all of those are. All of those are really good, but you really have to set set it up for success up front and set expectations for what kind of time and resources people are willing to you know, contribute to the conversation. Yeah, that's that's really helpful. I think the, the a lot of people look up and have a board that they don't actually like at some point in the journey and wonder like how did that happen? And it probably goes back to the retrospect thing. Like if you'd set it up and set the expectations earlier. Uh, you would, uh, a friend of mine uh, started launch darkly and she, before the pandemic, wouldn't let her board members have screens in, in their board meetings, like no laptops, no phones, no nothing. Yeah. I mean, who would have, like, it's the only time I've ever heard of it, but you know, when you go from zero to 3 billion in four years, I guess you can do that. But it, you know, it was, but you started that at the very beginning. Like if you want to be on this board, right, this is the expectation, you know, that set them up for success because people were engaged and focused. Yeah. So uh, this has been this has been great. I've, I mean, I've, I've learned a bunch. I hope the people listening have learned a bunch. We could probably talk about this a lot more. Um, maybe I should leave time and get Abe on the phone and get his get his your partner get 
you know, get his take, see where there's agreement and disagreement. But uh, I've been asking the same questions to wrap up every time, just because I think there might be some fun patterns. So the first one is always, did I miss anything? Like, is there anything about go to market that you'd want to talk about that we didn't cover here that you think is important for people to know, especially technical founders? Yeah, I, I think if you're a technical founder and you've never sold anything, spend time with customers. Um, this is all like, you know, if you, if you think back, you know, 10, 15 years ago, this was a little bit of the inception of the, of Steve Blank's Lean Launchpad concept. It's like, go talk to a hundred customers. You know, there's, there's programs that like National Science Foundation's running for, you know, ultra technical founders that are really based on that, that concept. And I think it does everyone a world of good to really go, you know, go talk to customers, go talk to, especially at the earliest stages, get out there in the field. Don't trust you know, as a founder, don't trust your sales team necessarily as your as your sole conduit to customers. You know, develop those relationships. And for those of you raising money, um, which is kind of everyone all the time, everyone's always raising, right? <laughs> yeah, always um, be closing. <laughs> always be raising. Always be closing. Um, you know, have the uh, ha- have an appreciation for the fact that most companies fail because they never figure out their go-to-market or misunderstand market feedback and and don't develop the product customers want. That, at the end of the day, is usually how companies fall down. And whether your VCs or VCs you're talking to have enunciated that, they all kind of know it intuitively. It's almost never, can you develop the product you were trying to develop? It's always, did you develop the product the customers wanted and did you figure out how to sell it? And if you focus... If you focus your pitch on that stuff, that might go a really long way towards you know earning the trust of, of investors. Yeah, that's great. Also, it'll make you more successful. I've been at companies where we we found if we listened to the customers, there was a competitor that did and sold for a billion dollars a year later, and we focused on doing what we said we would do and sold for a couple hundred million a decade later. Like it was like if we just focused on the customers, I think. And, and, and done that instead of what the investors thought they wanted, everybody would have been better off. Mm-hmm. Um, it's great advice. Uh, three, next question, three best practices you wish every founder would do. I personally love regular email updates in the text, in the body of the email, not in some attachment, not in a high production value kind of situation, <laughs> words in an email. Snapshots. It should fit above the fold. What happened recently? And this is, you know, in terms of cadence, monthly cadence is fantastic. I, I, I make a point of talking to most of the CEOs I directly interact with, you know, every one, two, or three weeks. We have regular update cadence. And I also find that to be incredibly productive. Obviously, it totally depends, but surprises are bad, and that's a good way to avoid surprises. And do not hide. Don't, and as a second, a second point, do not hide bad news. Front-run bad news every single time. If you see it coming, you lose a big account, you have a customer failure, you have a you know, product failure, you have some other terrible news, you have a competitor that just kicked your butt, be mm-hmm. upfront. I mean, you, the, what you want is, is your partners uh, helping you win. They're, you know, a bad partner is going to just yell at you. Those are bad partners, and they, they, they're around. You need to do your best to manage them, obviously. But the good partners are the ones that are like, well, that sucks. How are we going to fix that? Let me, let me bring these resources in. So be upfront and transparent and proactive about communicating bad news and good news. And um, third one? I mean, talk, to, talk, talk to 100 customers is a good one. Talk, talk, talk to 100 to customers. customers. Yep. Oh. And make sure you listen to those customers. Do not lead them. 
you shouldn't be doing the talking. They should be doing the talking. Yeah, also, that's, that's, as, a, as a fourth, as a fourth one, yeah. just as a uh, just as a note, and I, I'm sure you know there's lots of lots of podcasts and, and other you know input telling people how to fundraise, but fundraising should absolutely be a conversation, and and customer development should absolutely be a conversation. If you find it's a pitch, a un, you know a unilateral pitch, you're probably doing something wrong. That's that's great advice. That's that's great. Yeah, just getting out your soapbox and telling people how great how much money they're going to save with you. Is, is and, probably, and, and learning what their problems are. They might tell you they've got this other problem where you don't have a feature for that. You're like, okay, well, I could have that feature in a week. And then and then they love you. Right. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, absolutely. And they probably have no idea that it only took you a week. They might, you might be way more valuable than the thing you <laughs> spent two years building. Um, you just never know. It's the craziest things. Yeah. So second to last question, best advice you ever got? <laughs> For better or worse, my be- the best advice I got was probably as I was uh, as le- as I was leaving my cushy job at Intel um, to go start a company with no no salary and and no nothing um, came from my wife. Is you know, <laughs> go do that? Like never going to be a better time to go do that. You know? so oh, that's great. That was that's jump great. out and do it. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> well, um, worked out okay, but a little stressful. Yeah, no, that's great advice. I think having, I mean, I think having a partner that's supportive on the home front is is incredible. Well, if you have that choice, that is a no-brainer. Yeah. And and for those for those so inclined, not everyone is this person, but I've never started anything without a partner. Um, the last company, last firm, this firm, it's always been with a partner. So if you're that person, partnering is amazing, and and finding someone you can trust. Yeah. Oh, that's that's great advice as well. Well, so I really appreciate you joining and being on. I, I've learned a lot. I hope people listening learn a lot from this. Uh, anything? Where can people find you? Where can they find your firm? Anything else that you want to talk about? Yeah, I mean, I'm. I I, I read my email. I try to respond to everything um, as long as it's in in the relevant universe. So you know, it's my name at congruentvc.com. Feel free to email. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on. X Twitter, I'm on Blue Sky, I'm on, I don't know, Facebook, I guess. Awesome. <laughs> Not right Awesome. Well, thanks, Josh. I really appreciate you, Dorian. Pleasure. Pleasure.